All right, good morning. Let's go ahead and get started this morning. And uh, as, as we get started, I just want to remind you that as we close today for our service, we do have a, our special business meeting uh, right after the, the morning service. So the way that'll work is it will close the service as, as normally uh, and give time for, for people who need to leave to, to leave. Uh, and then we'll get started, probably just take three or four minutes and then get started with that business meeting. We don't want to keep you too long, but do let me encourage you. If you, if you are a member of the church, one of the reasons we're having this, typically we have our business meetings on Wednesday night. Uh, we don't get great attendance at those. And, uh, so we, we thought if we have it on a Sunday and people are already here, maybe they would stay afterwards and, and we're voting on a couple things, uh, our, uh, servants, our volunteers for, for this upcoming year, and our budget. And so some of that is, is pretty important. We want to talk about that. Um, and, and if you're a member here, you, you ought to know about those things, and you, ought, you have an interest in those things. So I want to encourage you, if you're able, I understand that uh, sometimes there are things that prevent us, but if you're able to stay afterwards, uh, that, that would be great. Uh, for our scripture reading this morning, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse number 5. This reading this morning is going to go along. Jared's going to be preaching for us this morning. And uh, this reading is going along with, with his message and with the book of Ruth. So Deuteronomy 25, verse number 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Let's pray this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your grace to us this morning. We thank you that you make provisions for your people to care for them and to, to meet their needs. Uh, Lord, we thank you most of all that you have met our needs, that you have cared for us as your people. We recognize that and see that in the fact that you've provide us, provided us with a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, your Son. We want to pray this morning as we reflect on the book of Ruth and on the redemption that occurs there. We want to pray for our brother Jared that you would just strengthen him and be able to declare that truth with, with boldness and clarity. And God, I pray that you'd help us see the beauty of this story that we're going to look at this morning and that we would, that we would be drawn to Christ as our Redeemer. God, build up your church, strengthen your church through uh, the message of the book of Ruth. God, we do ask for your blessing on every aspect of, of this service this morning, and we, we pray, first of all, that we 
would have a mindset to, to desire to glorify you. That's why we're here this morning, to worship you and to praise you. And so we pray that that would be our heart this morning. And we pray it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's have our ushers come forward this time. As that song makes so clear, and hopefully we are reminded that truly our life is, every, every aspect of our life is for the glory of God. That's why we exist. And so Paul says in, in Corinthians, and some of our kids should know this because this is their verse for next generation, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And so let's pray this morning that, that we might live for the glory of of God's wonderful grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and uh, we do pray that this service this morning, that our hearts this morning, that our thoughts this morning, that this offering this morning, that the sermon this morning, and that everything, not only this morning, but throughout the day and throughout our lives would, would be done for your glory and for your honor. You are worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise. Lord, and so often we fall short of your glory. We sin against you. So God, help us. Help us to grow. Help us to grow in our desire to glorify you. Lord, we pray for the offering this morning. Uh, we, we know that you delight in cheerful givers. So we pray that our attitude this morning as we give would be a, an attitude of joy that would bring you glory. We, we recognize, Lord, that we can put really the biggest amount uh, of anyone in this offering plate this morning, and we can do it in such a way that you do not receive glory if our heart is not right, if our attitude is not right. So we pray that as we give this morning, our heart would be to glorify you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to see you here. We're, we want to welcome you to Union Baptist Church. And I uh, hope you feel at home this morning. We're going to continue our series through the book of Ruth. And uh, this morning we're in chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, please meet me there in Ruth chapter... Actually, might as well just open up to Ruth chapter 2 because we'll begin with a, a reading that starts in Ruth chapter 2, verse 19. We'll read through that all the way through the end of chapter 3. God's Word says, And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished my, all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young men, women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. 
So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I'm a redeemer, but there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it, be not, let it not be known that, a, that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Will you pray with me? Father, your word is beautiful. God, your word is sustaining your word is powerful, and your spirit, O oh God, is able to do all that we need this morning. And so I pray as we go through this Old Testament text, God, that you would bring life to this text, that you would give me freedom and grace and ability. God, my hope and my trust is in you, my rock and my salvation. There is no power in me, no, no ability in my words. My, my skills, God, fail to bring life. I can only speak Lord, I'm a tool, an instrument, God, and I pray that you would use me this morning as such, but that you would speak, that your voice would be heard, that you would impart life to those who are dead and give grace to those who need it and hope to those, God, whose hope seems slim. God, bless your people. Lord, be present with your people. Let your word, O oh God, help your people. And this is our prayer, our plea this morning. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the book of Ruth, and, and I don't know what you think, but I think the book of Ruth is absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's, it's a magnificent piece of literature. It's, it's a well-told story. It's craftsmanship at its best. Uh, just the way that it, it flows, we don't know who wrote it, but it is, it, it is just a well-done uh, work. And I, I mean, I would wonder if it would survive even if it weren't in the pages of the Scripture just because it is so well put together and tells such a beautiful story. But we've noticed three emerging themes, and those have been pointed out up to this point, that we're, we're kind of focusing on providence, we're focusing on love, and, and the theme of redemption. And we've seen God's providence is both difficult and desirable. God's providence is both. Sometimes it's the hard things, and sometimes it's the, the, the easy things. And we've seen that in the famine that sent Elimelech and his family to move to Moab. Uh, we saw it in Ruth's marriage, God's providence in Ruth's marriage into Elimelech's family because she was not a Jew, she was a Moabite. But we saw God's providence in her barrenness. 
God prevented her from having a child with, with uh, Elimelech's son. We see it in, in the despair that followed. We see God's providence in Ruth's conversion because she pledged herself to Yahweh and to the people of Yahweh. We see his providence in bringing them back into Israel. And so uh, we also see God's providence in the fact that even though Elimelech's family seemed to have been fleeing from the, the land of promise, seemed to have been lacking faith, this doesn't seem to be the most... Uh, wise and godly decision to move away from the covenant people of God into the Moabite country. Uh, but we do see this, and I want to make this, this pause right here for application. We see God's providence in that, even though it was unwise. And what we learn is that even though we're accountable for God to our actions, our sins or our foolishness or our lack of wisdom cannot thwart God's plan. But we balance that truth with the fact that we are still responsible for our sins. And so we hear Paul as a counterweight to that. We don't want to say, well, I can't mess up God's plan so it doesn't matter. We hear Paul on the other side who says, are we to continue in sin so that grace abounds? God forbid. We have to hold on to both of those. We can't out the grace of God, but we don't, we don't pursue that as a goal either. That would be foolishness. But what I want us to learn here is that even though there was a, a lack of faith, even though that there was, uh, uh, they moved and it may not have been wisdom, God was rescuing Ruth. God was bringing salvation through foolishness. And we need to know that, that even in our mess-ups, even in our, our worst and most uh, embarrassing moments, God can bring redemption. And that's something that I want us to take courage with this morning. But let's go on. We see providence in, in the Hesed that Ruth shares with Naomi. They're moved back to Bethlehem. We see God's providence in the, in the fact that accurate news, and I, think about that, rumors spread quickly, but it's usually not very accurate. But by the time Naomi and Ruth get back to Bethlehem, Boaz has already found out all the truth, and it's very accurate, all the things that, that Naomi or that Ruth had done for Naomi. So accurate news regarding Ruth's faithful covenant love had already reached Boaz before Ruth ever did. We see God's providence in the randomness of how Ruth meets Boaz in his own field. God's providence is displayed in Boaz's wealth and his position and his prolonged singleness. Think about that. Here's a man in middle age who hasn't married yet, got all the money that, that a wife could want and all the character that a wife could need, and he's not married. What woman wouldn't want to pick that man up? But he's single by God's providence because God had kept him for Ruth. So even in the bitterness of singleness, sometimes God is at work, and we need to, we need to remember those things. We see that, that God is at work in the fact that Boaz is a redeemer. And in our text today, it's in tiny details, like when she got all dressed up and put on her makeup and, and washed herself and anointed herself, she grabbed a cloak and ran down to the threshing floor. And we see that that cloak became a basket of blessing on the way back home. Just a random choice of, of garment to wear. God turned into a, an opportunity to heap blessing upon blessing. So God's providence is at work in everything we see. It drips off of every page of the book of Ruth. Well, we see love in, in our verses today in, in verse 1. It's Naomi's love for Ruth. My daughter, I need to provide you with rest. We see it in Ruth's love for Boaz and Naomi in verses 9 and 10. We see love as prominently displayed in Boaz's love for Ruth and Naomi in verses 11, 13 through 15 and 17. And then Boaz's love for God and God's word in verses 12 and 13. So love is dripping from so many pages or so many verses from this text from this morning. But then redemption also emerges in our text for today. 
It's in the close of chapter 2 when we went back and read that. It's in chapters 3 and it will be in chapter 4 next week. And so in in chapter 2 verse 20, Naomi calls Boaz one of our redeemers. Then Ruth refers to him as redeemer in chapter 3, 9. Then in 3, 12, the word redeemer shows up and it's applied to Boaz and to this unnamed person. Uh, And and then in 3, 13, Boaz... uh, then later, Boaz pledges to redeem Ruth and get, if God gives him the opportunity. In fact, the entire plot line of the book of Ruth is the redemption that God works for two widowed people that are destitute and impoverished as he brings them out of a land uh, of, of idol worship back into the covenant people of God and provides for them and meets their needs. And so every act of redemption in the book of Ruth points us forward to our ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ. And we need to know that and see that up front. We need to expect to find Christ in the book of Ruth because he's being pointed to quietly behind the scenes, but he is being pointed to in every act of redemption that Yahweh works for his people. All of those say one greater is coming. A better redeemer is on the way. A more beautiful redemption is on the horizon. But look, my people, here are glimpses. Here are tastes of what I have planned for you. So the beauty and the depth of, of God's redemptive love is on full display in saving Ruth and adding her to Jesus' family tree. Ruth met Boaz. We need to know this as background, and I promise I'll preach here in a minute. Ruth met Boaz toward the beginning of the barley harvest, and we see that in chapter 1, verse 22. But when we compare that to chapter 2, verses 1 and, and, uh, chapter two, verses one and 3, we see that, that somewhere toward the beginning of this process of, of reaping uh, the barley that she meets Boaz. So she goes to glean in his fields, as chapter 2.23 says, until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. So we've got about a 10-week period here where uh, Boaz and Ruth are getting better acquainted. That's kind of the timetable from the, the kind of the middle of spring, early spring into mid-June. We've got about 10 weeks here, give or take, where they've met. They get to know each other through, through hard labor. They get to see each other's character on display. And then ultimately we get to... Uh, uh, where they're, in, they're engaged to be married. And this seems fast by our standards. And let me just stop real quick and say to any of you young ladies in the room, this is not really the model for how fast you want to pursue a marriage. This isn't a standard as, as, that we gauge all courtships based on. It's simply the timetable that God used in this particular case. But I would point this out to you. Ruth didn't pick her husband based on Ruth's tastes only. She also had Naomi there guiding her and helping her to see men of character. And so I I think that particular part does help us as parents when we think about our kids and their future spouses and kids, I'm speaking to you, it's not your choice only. You need to listen to the wisdom of your parents when you think about who you're going to marry because it's a big decision and they've helped you with every other decision in your life. Do not box them out of this one. Lean on your parents. They're given by God as guides and protectors and they need to help you find Mr. Right, not Mr. Good Enough. All right, so no doubt Ruth and, Nail, or Ruth and, and Boaz spent many long hours together over this 10-week period, harvesting, working, laboring hard, seeing each other's character. But here's what I want us to focus on. I want us to look at four things in chapter 3, and I, I alliterate, and the first one's a little bit of a stretch for, for most people now, but I'm calling it pining for rest. It's on the back of your bulletin there. Pining for rest or longing for rest, and we see that in verses three, uh, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. In verse 1, Naomi says, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? 
Well, we get an indication here that Naomi, who has been bitter, Naomi, who has said, do not call me Naomi, because that means pleasant, but call me Mara, because God has, has treated me bitterly. Now she's starting to turn her focus away from her own struggles, and she's starting to think about somebody else. She's coming out of the the darkness, coming out of the depression, the bitterness. And we see that because now she's not self-focused, she's other-focused. And she says this, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? So what does that mean? Is she saying, hey, I'm tagging in, I'll I'll go work the fields tomorrow, you stay home and prop your feet up and, and just have a spa day. Well, that's not what she's saying. This idea of rest reaches all the way back to chapter 1, verse 9, where on the way back to Bethlehem, Orpah and Naomi are with her, and Naomi says to them, after saying, you know, go back to your houses, she says to her daughters-in-law, the Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So this rest is tied to the idea of marriage. It's tied to being protected by a man, being brought into a home, being cared for, being redeemed, being provided for, and all those things. And so it seems clear in the context in chapter 3 that Naomi is now intending her words to mean something like this. May the Lord give you a good home and a good husband. Based on what we're seeing in chapter 3 here, that's the connection. She's basically saying in chapter 1, my daughters-in-law, may Yahweh give you a good home and a good husband back in Moab. But for Ruth, these words turned out to be ironic and in a sense prophetic because Naomi didn't know what she was saying. She didn't get the full import of what God was going to do, but she told them to return to their families where she hopes in Moab God will be kind enough to give them other husbands besides the, the sons that came from her loins that had already died. She can't provide them husbands anymore. But instead of returning home, Ruth pledges her her loyalty to Naomi. And as it turns out, God was going to give her rest in the house of her husband. Her deceased husband's family was going to be the house that provided rest for her. Naomi had no clue when she pronounced that blessing over her daughters-in-law that God was literally going to bring her back to the house of her husband and give her rest through a kinsman redeemer. So you see the irony and even the prophetic nature of of what the Spirit of God was was cluing us in on through that statement back in chapter 1. So by the time we get to chapter 3, they've made the move, they're working hard, and they're pining for rest. That means they're longing, they're aching in their souls to be redeemed. They're inwardly desiring protection and provision from the one who cared for their deepest needs and provided them rest. They're longing for this. you got to remember there's no social programs in their day. There's no government assistance to feed them or clothe them or to care for their needs. We don't have WIC. We don't have food stamps at this time. So without husbands, without sons to provide and protect for them, Naomi and Ruth were vulnerable and impoverished. They had no hope of a bright tomorrow, not as long as they were on their own. They had no hope when they moved back that anybody would want to step into their situation and redeem it. So in this condition, their lives would be filled with frustration and toil as they struggled to meet their basic needs. But I think we need to understand that their physical vulnerability and their impoverishment parallels our spiritual vulnerability and impoverishment when we're not in Christ. So if you're sitting in the pew this morning and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you spiritually sit where Ruth and Naomi were physically. You are poor and destitute. You are unprotected. You are open for attack. 
You have no redeemer. You have no hope. You have no bright future outside of Jesus Christ. If you would have hope at all, it's going to be found in the one who would redeem, and his name is Jesus. So let me ask you, do you sense an aching in your soul for redemption? And maybe that word's a little bit weird for you. So do you sense that the world is broken? And do you have a desire to see it fixed? I would say most of us do, even the unsaved that are sitting here this morning listening to this message. That's the idea. That's the longing for redemption that you don't know what to call. You sense that the world is broken. You sense that your life is messed up. You understand that all things aren't like they ought to be. And you're trying to fulfill that with sex and drink and everything else. And it doesn't work. You long for things to be fixed, to be set right, to be redeemed. That's what you need. That's what your soul is aching for this morning. That's why you feel empty because you don't have a redeemer, a protector, one to come over you and to love you and to spread their wings around you and bring you into their home. But that desire, that sense that you have is God instilled and it testifies that you know enough to flee to Christ. But right now you're sitting in your hardness of heart fleeing from Christ and you need to turn and repent this morning. Do you desire inwardly to be loved by God, cared for, protected, and at rest? Well, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the pledge and promise of Christ this morning. So even as believers, we live with a degree of unfulfilled longing. This isn't just, well, only if I'm unsaved, I feel the brokenness of the world. Even as believers brought in having a redeemer over us, there's still this unfulfilled longing that Paul picks up on. And he says it this way, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, groaning in the pains of childbirth. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So saints, you should be pining for the consummation of your redemption this morning. There's a sense in which this is not just speaking to the unsaved. I'm speaking to the saved as well. You ought to yearn like Ruth for the consummation of the promise to redeem your body, to redeem this world, to redeem your soul, because what you've got isn't the best that you're going to get. More is coming. And we have hope and we have need to rejoice this morning because of this great hope. In our text, redemptive rest is connected to marriage. So also our redemptive rest is connected to marriage. Revelation 19, 7 through 9 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's God's people, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Paul picks it up in this way in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. See the marriage connection there? And gave himself up for her. See redemption? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So husbands, are you providing gracious, loving, protective redemption in your home for your wife? 
That's something that the book of Ruth, and by extension through the New Testament, calls each of us to be doing. There's a, there's a concrete application from this Old Testament text. We're not talking theory, we're talking practice now. We see the theme, we understand what God's calling us to because the New Testament explains that our redemption and our work as a, an instrument of redemption in our circle of influence is that we love our wives well, we provide a home of gracious, loving, protective redemption for them. Are you doing that? Is that even on your radar? It ought to be. It ought to be. Young men who aren't married yet, that's the goal of manhood for you. It's not the only goal, but it's one goal. God is expecting you to grow up into that as an example. It's not just about the good times. It's about working hard and paying the bills and providing for your wife and for your kids and being engaged and being there. That's manhood. Manhood isn't sports. It's providing a, redempt a redemption for your wife and for your kids. And that's what Jesus has done for us in a spiritual sense. That's what Boaz would do for Ruth and by extension Naomi. So this is one of God's expectations for you, church. Plead with God to give your wife redemptive rest through your ministry to her, men. But now let me speak to the ladies. Wives, seeing that God is requiring this of your husband, are you praying regularly that God will enable your husband to provide that rest for you? The very rest that he expects your husband to give. He's on the hook to provide it, but I think you're on the hook to pray for it to plead God's grace in his life to give it to you because he is a broken, messed up sinner just like you and you ought to be raising him up in prayer, not just expecting the benefits of his redemption, but pleading with God to show him how to provide it, to walk in it, love him patiently and graciously and give him the opportunity in the small ways and the ways that he can do and understands to do how to provide you with the redemptive rest that you need. That requires communication. Honey, this is what you're doing. This is what I need you to do. So it calls us to communication, to, to open ourselves up. And there's, some, there's a peace, there's skin in the game for everybody in this. So praying that God teaches your husband uh, how to love you well actually points your hope not to your husband, but to the God who gives your husband capabilities to do that. By praying for your husband to do what God requires him to do, you're actually learning not to put your hope in in your husband, but to just see your husband as the hands of God, the means of God, meeting a basic need. But your hope is in the God who answers your prayers. So it, it helps you not to make an idol of your husband, not to make an idol of being cared for, not to make an idol of the perfect marriage. It admits the marriage is broken because two sinners are in it, and it's pleading to the God of all grace to provide everything needed to make that marriage work. And so your hope then is in God, not in your husband. And so there's a great wisdom in that. Naomi was encouraged by Boaz's grace toward Ruth. She saw it as God's kindness to them, and she intended to see just how far God's kindness would go. We see that in verses 2 through 4. Naomi attempts to test, and I don't mean that in a bad way. People preach this differently. Some people think this was the most cockamamie plan, that it was absolutely uh, crazy, that, oh my goodness, they were on the border of sin. Some people say they stepped over the line of sin. I just can't go there. I don't think it was sinful. I think it was daring. I think it was an act of faith, what we're fixing to look at. I think it pushes the boundaries of our comfort, but I think it's what two people that think they're going to starve to death would probably do in faith toward God who says he'll provide. And so I see it as courageous. 
I see it as looking to God to do what can't be done and stepping out in faith, not saying, oh, the providence of God will take care of it all. No, we're going to do something, Ruth. Here's my plan. And so Naomi hatches a plan. She says, girl, get cleaned up. Fix that hair, put on the makeup, grab some clothes, because tonight Boaz is going to be down at the threshing floor guarding his, his harvest. He's going to eat there, he's going to sleep there, and I want you to get ready and go to him, stay in the shadows, wait till he lays down, and then when, he's, when he lays down to rest, you go in, you sneak in quietly, you lay at his feet, and he'll tell you what to do. Well, how did she know that Boaz was going to go along with this? She didn't. This was a desperate, but, but I think daring, faith-filled approach. I mean, we're going to starve if something doesn't happen and we believe God's going to help. And I've seen the, the, the door of providence crack open and I'm going to see just how far God intends to meet my need through Boaz because Boaz had been good to them. So Naomi was convinced that God controlled the details of life, but she did not default to fatalistic determinism. That's where our mind wants to go every time we have a conversation or every time I have a conversation with anybody about the sovereignty of God and his control over the details of life their answer to me, unless they really know their Bible is, well, then it doesn't matter what I do. Well, that's baloney. That's not the conclusion that Ruth and Naomi came to. It's not the conclusion that Daniel came to when he said, I read the Bible and I saw that 70 years had passed and that God promised to redeem his people from slavery. And so I fasted and I prayed and I prayed with God that he would do exactly what he said he would do. Or David who said, because you've made promises to me to build your house or my, my family to build your house, I found courage to pray to you and to do the things that you've called me to do. The, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, his control over all things, if we understand that, does not stop us from action. It puts us to action. And that's what we see Naomi doing. Ruth, I don't know all the details of the future, but I know God's at work. He's been blessing. I'm out of my fog. I'm seeing more clearly here. He has blessed us and blessed us and blessed us and blessed us. And so we're going we're gonna to go in that. We're going we're gonna to lean into God. We're going to throw ourselves completely and entirely on his grace. And here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. And so she goes believing God controls the details of life, believing God's going to be there and work things out with Boaz when Ruth shows up and she says, he'll tell you exactly what to do she's not a she's not a, a fortune teller she does she's not a prophet she's trusting in the providence of God the, the sovereignty of God so instead of fatalistic determinism we need to understand that God's control of all things should give us courage to act boldly that's why the first missionary society was built they believed that God was sovereign over salvation, and instead of saying, he'll save whomever he wants to save, I don't have to do anything, they said, I'm going to go because God's going to save. I'm going to preach because he's going to bless it. He said he would, and I'm going to do what he said he would do because I believe he'll do what he said he would do. So instead of blaming God for inactivity, we boldly act. God's sovereignty provides the only sure foundation for our bold and faithful service. If God's not in control, what hope do we have to do anything? Zero. It is precisely because he's in control that we boldly step up to the plate and we do everything he's called us to do. When we know that our life is in God's hands, we can't mess up his decree. And then we're freed to serve him fearlessly. So in verse 5, Ruth agrees with Naomi's plan and she takes immediate action. So that's them pining for rest. Second thing I want us to see is that Ruth pursues rest, verses 6 through 9. Ruth washes, anoints herself, puts on her nice clothes. She even grabs a cloak or a scarf 
and heads down to the threshing floor. She is pursuing rest and rest in the idea of marriage. We talked about that. She's, she's after a spouse here. It's a bold move to say the least. And as I said, some people feel like it was reckless, impertinent. It just wasn't the right thing to do. But I think it's an action of faith. She was leaning entirely on God and trusting that he would not let her fall. What did they stand to lose after all? What else do you take from two poor women? The only, the only thing that could happen is they could die and then they go to their reward. I mean, how bad is that? So humanly speaking, what's to lose at this point? They're, they're throwing themselves entirely on God. They're single, they're unprotected, they're lonely. The worst that could happen is Ruth comes home single, unprotected, and lonely. They're already there. So listen to me. Until you're desperate enough to throw yourself at the feet of Christ, as Ruth does Boaz, then, then you have no stake in Christ. If you're here this morning and you, you need the grace of God or desire the grace of God, Ruth is showing you a picture of what it looks like to pursue Jesus. She goes to Boaz. She throws herself at his feet. And that's what we're called to do with Christ. We're called to repent, to flee this world, to cling to Jesus. And so until you're as desperate in your sins as she was in her poverty, you'll never run to Jesus. So God, make us aware of our desperate need of Christ. That's my prayer this morning, that through this message, God would make you and make me more aware of my desperate need of Christ, more aware of your desperate need of Christ. By God's grace, Ruth went unnoticed as, as, as she snuck down to the floor because it could have been bad sneaking past other threshing floors in and out where men are being men and have no regard for women. This could have been really bad for her. She took on a great risk to get there and the cloak probably was for cover as she went. But by God's grace, she went unnoticed. And as Naomi said, she waited till Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry. That does not mean that he was loaded. He was content and happy. He had satisfied himself with food and drink. He was not drunk because drunkenness is a sin. But he had ate and drank, and now he was laying down to rest. And, and so that's what that means, this, uh, that, that he had eaten drunk and his heart was merry. So he laid down to sleep in, the, in, in happiness, a job well done, a hard day's labor is over, and he was pleased with what he had accomplished. So after Boaz was asleep, Ruth crept out, laid his feet, and when he awoke, he found her laying at his feet, and she said to him, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. <laughs> spread your wings can be translated, spread the corners of your garment. That's a, a, another faithful rendering of that, that expression. So what Ruth is doing here, I think, is a couple of things. I think one thing that Ruth is doing is reminding Boaz of the blessing he had spoke over her in chapter 2, verse 12, where he said, the Lord repay you for what you've done and full reward be given by the Lord, the God of, given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. I think she's remembered that. And she's saying, Boaz, you blessed me in the name of Yahweh you said, may God repay you for all, your, all that you've done. May he spread the corners of his wings or his garment over you. I see you as the means God could do that with. I trust God, but I see you as an expression of that a fulfillment of that blessing. She's asking him for marriage. She's proposed. She's, this is the equivalent of down on one knee with the, with the ring in hand. And she's saying, Boaz, marry me. 
But that's in fulfillment of what she sees his blessing as saying. It's, it's, it's parallel to God working in her life. It's not contrary to taking action doesn't push God out of the picture. It's an expression of her faith in God. It moves her to do something. And so she goes and she asks him to spread the garment, the, his garments or his wings over her. Well, what else does all this mean? I also believe it's related to language that you'll find later, covenantal language that's found in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, where God says of Israel, when I passed by you and again saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. That's the clearest connection that this is a proposal for marriage. It's the same language that Yahweh uses for his marriage to Israel. You're my people. I have made a covenant with you. I've spread my garment over you and covered your nakedness, covered your shame, met your need, took you in, put my name on you. You belong to me by covenant. And she says, Boaz, would you do that for me? Would you be my redeemer? Would you be the expression of my heavenly father's love for me on earth? Would you stretch the, the corners of your garment over me and cover as it, as it is my nakedness, my shame, my poverty, my want, my need? Would you meet my needs? Would you be the fulfillment of the blessing that you pronounced over me just a few weeks ago? Would you do that for me? Would you love me in that way? Would you love Naomi in that way? So Ruth comes to Boaz pursuing rest through redemption. It would take this, this, this process of a legal transaction for the, for the rest, the marriage to take place. She had to be bought or redeemed out of poverty in order to get to that point. And so she comes seeking marriage, but asking, would you, would you take on all my debt? Would you take on all my destitution? Would you take me and, and broken down old Naomi on as, as people that you would care for and spend your wealth on? You don't have to. You're not required to. You could pass on this, but would you do that as an expression of God's love for me? Would you be faithful to, the, to your family in that way? So in a beautifully vulnerable moment, beautifully vulnerable, Ruth implores Boaz to bring her into a covenant of marriage with himself. She is pursuing rest by clinging to the one who has shown her grace, love, and protection. So in this beautifully vulnerable act that Ruth displays, it's in this act that Ruth displays what it looks like to come to Christ for salvation. If you're not in Christ, then you need a redeemer, just like Ruth did. Like Ruth, your sins have brought death, poverty, and destitution to your life. Your life is a fruitless famine, you might say, without Christ. And you have no one outside of Jesus who can provide for you. So we see connection here in Ruth's position to our position outside of Christ. So in this moment, Ruth's actions portray what faith-filled clinging to Christ looks like. Like Ruth, you must throw yourself down at the feet of Jesus Christ, the greater Boaz. Boaz was great, but there's one greater and his name is Jesus Christ. But you have no share in the marriage covenant of God. And, uh, or of Christ unless you come pleading with Jesus to redeem you from your sins. You can't be in Revelation 19 invited to the marriage supper. You can't be cleansed by the washing of the water of the word if you won't come to Jesus Christ. You have no hope 
You have no security. You have no future. And I know that you feel like you do if you're not in Christ this morning. But God's reality, the truest reality is, is that you're poor and naked and destitute. And you have no hope for tomorrow. Hell is the future for you if you're outside of Christ. You need to be redeemed. You need to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. You need to cling to him and he will because he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to him. He will pledge himself to you just like Boaz did to Ruth. He will redeem you. All of those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe those promises this morning. I plead with you to do so. The third thing we see is promising rest. Just as Christ will do for all who come to him, Boaz promises rest to Ruth and by extension to Naomi. But however, there's a plot twist here. And I hope you picked up on that. And I hope you're not so familiar with the story that you just read over it knowing the end and, and miss what's going on here. Put yourself in Ruth's shoes. In verses 10 through 12, we're taking on an emotional roller coaster As Booth responds to her, he says, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter, that you have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. He's on board. He wants to do this. For all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. So at this point, Ruth must have been elated. She's probably thinking, It worked! He said yes! God is redeeming me through Boaz. Hallelujah. But then we get to verse 12. Got to be the thoughts in her heart. And then we get to verse 12. And now it's true that I'm a redeemer, yet... The bottom falls out. All the air is sucked out of the room in this moment. As Ruth hears him say, I am on board... I would love to take you on. I would love to marry you. You are the best thing that I've seen come along in my entire life. Yes, yes, I want to marry you. Yet, there is someone who's closer. There's another redeemer, another man who has rights to you before I do. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. And oh, how her heart must have sunk within her. In that moment, perhaps she was thinking, Boaz! Why did you have to mention another man? Why do you have to love the the details of the law so much? Why do we have to get that specific? I don't want another man. I came to you. I want you to redeem me. But in that very moment, God was at work, working all things for Ruth's good. She couldn't see that. She didn't understand the end of her story yet. But imagine the weight that she felt when Boaz says, yes, I'm on board, but there's somebody else that we have to give a chance first. She hasn't even met this guy. He's not been kind to her. There's no history, no relationship, no familiarity. She wants Boaz. Well, we know the story. Boaz takes the matter to this unnamed would-be redeemer, and he waves his right of redemption. Andrew will preach through that next week. But I think we see the glory of Christ in this. Jesus is a kinsman redeemer. But we have a would-be redeemer that's closer kin than Jesus. And his name is Adam. You see, we're direct descendants of Adam. Though Christ had pledged from before the world began to redeem us, Adam was first given the chance. In the fall, Adam waived his right of redemption, though. 
He said, I, I, I won't redeem the rest of mankind. I choose to sin. I choose to go after what's right in front of my face. I don't want to lose this fruit on the tree. Sort of like, I don't want to lose my inheritance that I've got, this would-be redeemer says. Well, Adam had the right. He was our closest kin. We're directly descended from him. And in the fall, in his decision to sin, he said basically, nope, I can't take that on. I can't redeem the rest of mankind. And so Jesus, in his death, exercised his right of redemption over us. He had pledged it before Adam was ever born. So there's a sort of a parallel here. Boaz says, I will redeem you if the other guy can't, if the other guy won't. And we're in a similar situation because our other guy, our unnamed so-and-so, this Adam, he says, I can't do the work. I'm not going to do the work. He, he waved that right and Jesus gladly steps in as Boaz and says, I will accomplish through my death everything that I promised to my people that I would do. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 5.17, he makes the connection between Adam, who was our head, the one that we were closest related to, and Jesus, our Redeemer, who got the job done. In Ephesians 1.7, he says, in him, that's in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. But I want to show you one last thing. Boaz's curious response in mentioning this other redeemer was not reluctance on his part. It was not cold feet on his part. It was protection. So let's look at protecting rest in verses 13 or 14 rather through 18. The verses that Andrew read this morning, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, is what we call the Leveret Laws. And that word levere comes from the Latin word that means husband's brother. And that's the whole idea here. It's, it's, it's how you perpetuated the family name and gave inheritances if you were married, didn't have kids, and the husband dies. Well, then the brother comes in, or the next, or the next, or the next. And you keep going down the line until you get to someone in the family who is willing and able to fulfill that role and give children to this widow to perpetuate the name. He doesn't even get the inheritance that comes. It goes to the son and goes over here underneath the guy that's dead. So Boaz doesn't get anything out of taking on Naomi. He's giving here. It's sacrificial love. And so uh, that, that's what's running in the background here. The section that Andrew read is the background law that, that Boaz has in his mind that he's concerned about. So when Boaz mentions this other redeemer who was closer than himself, he was exercising protective love for Ruth. Well, how's that, you say? Well, Boaz wasn't going to risk God's blessing on Ruth even if it meant he couldn't have her. Let that one sink in for just a second. That's not the way we think, and it's not the way we're taught to think. The world tells us to go grab what's yours, you deserve it. He thinks he deserves Ruth. He wants Ruth, she wants him, but he says, you know what, God's got a law and I'm not going to outstep the, the boundaries of God's law to do what feels good to me. I'm going to trust now my situation into the hands of God who controls all things. I've got to give this guy a chance because if I do this, I'm not loving you well, Ruth. If I cut corners on what God's commanded of me, I'm actually not loving you well. So ladies, do not let your would-be suitors break God's law to win your heart. That's not sweet. That's stupid. It's sinful. We see in Boaz here a, a, a character 
We see in him, he points us to Christ in his integrity. He says, I will not break God's law to get what we both want out of this and the happy ending marriage that we think we're going to have. I'm going to follow God's law to the T because God commands blessing in obedience, not in disobedience. And so Boaz is protecting her rest. You'll either have rest in the unnamed so-and-so. If not him, I promise you, I'll give it to you. But one way or the other, Yahweh has met your need this night, my daughter. You could almost hear uh, Boaz saying those words to her. It was an act of faithful obedience on Boaz's part. It provides an example for us. We must never disobey God's word to fulfill our desires, no matter how good or how noble we want to make them out to be. Boaz points us to Christ in doing so, and in doing so, he sets an example for us all. The best way, the best way to love and protect people in your life is by uncompromised obedience to the word of God. Did you hear that? Do you love your family? Do you love your coworkers? Do you love the people around you? Then the best way you love them is you stop sinning against God. You stop disobeying God's commands. Don't tell me through your sinning that God's, yes, he can accomplish his ends, but you're on the hook, you're responsible, and this is where the responsibility of God or the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God meet. You do not have the option legally to walk around God's law and say, I'll do what I want to do because it seems right to me. If you love people in your life, then you relentlessly pursue obedience to God's word. You stop walking out and doing your own thing. It's unwise. It's sinful. Jesus, like Boaz, pictures this, this character, this, this flawlessness. No, he was a sinner, but he points us to Jesus who had to be sinless in order to redeem us from our sin. In a reflection of Christ's integrity, Boaz was blameless according to the law, and this protected his right to redeem Ruth. No scandal, no spot of sin would tarnish or prevent Boaz from doing what God was giving him the opportunity to do. So after an exciting night at the threshing floor, Ruth rushes home with anxious expectation. But you've got to understand, she doesn't know the end of the story. She just got told, yes, maybe. Yes, maybe. I want to, babe, but I can't right now. Let's see how, what tomorrow brings. And so she's excited, and she's probably deflated at the same time. And she runs home, probably tears in her eyes, turmoil in her heart, wondering, how will this matter turn out? Will I be Mrs. Boaz or Mrs. So-and-so? As she nervously explains everything to Naomi, Naomi says to her, Wait, my daughter. Calm down. Rest. Be still, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but settle the matter today. So imagine Ruth's turmoil. Imagine the anxiety churning in her heart, yet Naomi quiets her soul with hope. She applies hope as, as medicine to her soul in this moment. And we find ourselves living in the close of Ruth chapter 3. The story isn't over, but we don't know how. We, we haven't reached its end. We've a, we have a pledge of marriage through Jesus Christ, but we don't have the consummation of it. So in a sense, we're in a parallel spot. We've been, set, we've been told, yes, I want to redeem you. And we're in an, an even better spot because we know that nothing will step between Christ and his goal. But we're in that, that in-between place where the, the matter hasn't been fully fixed. 
It hasn't been worked out in its details. And so God calls us to faithful perseverance, trusting in the pledge and in the promise. And in a sense, God says, quiet your soul, my children, for Jesus will not rest until he has settled the matter. We're in, a same, in the same spot. But however, like Ruth, we can rest knowing that the matter has been settled. Jesus will redeem us. So as I close, I want to share a couple of scriptures with you and, and bring this to a close. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us to wait for, the son for, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And now these words from Revelation 22:17, and I hope they encourage you. And I want to draw you into this. I think that John, he's saying something beautiful here, but I'm asking you to participate in what we're going to hear John say in this closing statement. John writes this beautiful thing at the end of Revelation. He says, the spirit and the bride say come. Well, why do they say come? Because redemption hasn't been completed. Because we're at the end of Ruth chapter 3. We have a hope, but not a consummation. We have one who would redeem, but we're waiting for it to work itself out. And so John comes like Naomi and she says, and he says, hey church, God's people long for Christ. Spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears say come. And the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's John's invitation, and I'm ending with that one. You've seen the, the redemption, and we've gotten, I hope, fed as God's people and, and the blessings as God's people. But even John here, when he's appealing to God's people to long for the finality of their redemption, plead and pray for the return of Christ. Hope in that hope that we have. Take heart in that. But he looks back to the world and he says, did you hear what I said? There's redemption coming. There's hope on the way. And if you want that, then come. If you want that, then come to the waters. Drink the waters. Take of the waters of life without cost. You can be redeemed this morning if you're not already in Christ. So would you come? Would you throw yourself at the feet of your Redeemer, Jesus Christ? Would you enter into marriage covenant with Him? He is willing. Are you? Will you pray with me this morning? God, we love you. We love your word. And my simple prayer, my desire, God, at the aim of all of this preaching is that you would embolden your people to love you and long for you with reckless zeal and with, with faithful courage. And God, that you would invite sinners this morning, young or old, to throw themselves at the feet of Jesus, their Redeemer. God, would you work a glorious and beautiful salvation this morning through your word, through the message of salvation as pictured in Ruth chapter 3. God, would you draw sinners to yourself and grant everlasting life. Oh God, may you work that those who hear would come, that those who desire and are thirsty would come to the living waters that are already paid for. God, do your work. Let your word be powerful and glorious this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.